following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally airing March 4th, 2022. What critical coverage is missing from modern reports of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Are reports of Nazis in Ukraine real or overinflated by Russian fake news? Does a report from an American document written years ago indicate a need to deliberately overextend and unbalance Russia? How will Canada's involvement in NATO and their supplying of weapons to Ukraine threaten rather than secure peace in the Eastern European country? What can Canadians do now to build a movement for peace in Ukraine at this critical juncture? This week on the Global Research News Hour, more than seven days into the massive carnage and destruction that has rained down on much of the former Soviet country, we will be making available to listeners the voices of analysts and peace groups in the United Kingdom, the United States, and Canada who depart from the narrow and, they claim, false package that provokes audiences to more hawkish positions on behalf of the completely innocent and naive Ukrainian government. In our first half hour, writer and geopolitical historian Leon Tressel introduces some context to the violence missing from standard accounts. He is followed by Bruce Gagnon of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, who addresses the U.S.'s documented agenda for Russia via Ukraine. Finally, Tamara Lawrence, member of Voices of Women for Peace, talks about Canada's complicity in the war through NATO and what the country could be doing instead to de-escalate tension and strive for peace. On this week's program, the start of World War III, Part 1, Things You Don't Know About Russia and Ukraine. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 4th, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Undermining the national economy of an enemy nation is the unspoken objective of modern warfare. Historically, the modus operandi of economic warfare has been, quote, to weaken an adversary's economy by denying the adversary access to necessary physical financial and technological resources, or by otherwise inhibiting its ability to benefit from trade, financial, and technological exchanges with other countries. The, quote, COVID mandates, unquote, imposed by dominant financial interests go far beyond the existing strategies of economic warfare. Entire countries have been weakened and destabilized without the need for 
color revolutions or military intervention. Countries which are categorized as enemies of America have complied and endorsed the COVID mandates, including Cuba, Venezuela, and Iran. That comes from the article, Dangerous Crossroads, a World War III scenario at the height of the corona crisis, by Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, posted March 2nd. Where would those freed after serving their sentences live? 28 years after the Rwandan tragedy, Canada, France, Belgium, the UK, and the US maintain strong diplomatic and trade relations with the Rwandan regime. They turn a blind eye to all the devastating reports about its involvement in extra and intra-territorial executions, disappearances, arbitrary imprisonment, and military incursions in other countries. Does the establishment of good relations with the victors of the 1994 war grant them the right to flout the decisions of the ICTR even though they had been its most ardent supporters? Or is this just further proof that international criminal justice is no more than an instrument to advance the interests of major imperial powers? That comes from the article, International Criminal Justice Bears Its Colonial Fangs, by Robin Philpot, posted March 2nd, originally published on Canadian Dimension. To get the hang of how these NATO sanctions will, quote-unquote, ruin Russia, I asked for the succinct analysis of one of the most competent economic minds on the planet, Michael Hudson, author, among others, of a revised edition of the must-read Super-Imperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire. Hudson remarked how he is, quote, simply numbed over the near-atomic escalation of the U.S., unquote, on the confiscation of Russian foreign reserves and cut off from SWIFT, the main point is, quote, it will take some time for Russia to put in a new system with China. The result will end dollarization for good, as countries threatened with democracy or displaying diplomatic independence will be afraid to use U.S. banks, unquote. This, Hudson says, leads us to, quote, the great question, whether Europe and the dollar bloc can buy Russian raw materials, cobalt, palladium, etc., and whether China will join Russia in a minerals boycott, unquote. That comes from the article, Follow the Money, U.S. Sanctions Will Russia Be Able to Bypass Western Economic Warfare? By Pepe Escobar, posted March 2nd, originally published on The Cradle. Slovakia will not provide fighter jets to Ukraine, the Slovak foreign ministry told Newsweek on Tuesday. Bulgarian Prime Minister Kirill Petkov said Monday that Bulgaria doesn't have enough warplanes to guard its own airspace, let alone enough to send to Ukraine. On Monday, Ukraine's parliament claimed Poland planned on giving Ukraine MIG-29 fighters, but... Polish Prime Minister Matusz Morawiecki denied the plans. Poland doesn't have such plans, Matusz said on Tuesday. An unnamed EU diplomat told Politico that some, 
EU countries were, quote-unquote, outraged after Borrell announced that the bloc would be giving Ukraine warplanes since his announcement came shortly after Russia's nuclear forces were put on high alert. That comes from the article, EU plans to send fighter jets to Ukraine fall apart, by Dave DeCamp, posted March 2nd, originally published at antiwar.com. As Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau pulled out all the stops to quash the trucker protest against vaccine mandates, it became clear that democracy has been an illusion. For many years, the technocratic elite, with their global authoritarianism goals, have infiltrated governments around the world and pushed for surveillance and national security tools intended to suppress dissent. A key part of that dissent-crushing system is the surveillance apparatus that has been erected. While sold as a tool to hunt down dangerous criminals, its primary purpose is to stifle dissent among peaceful, law-abiding citizens. Financial warfare, banning people from using financial services, is another. That comes from the article, The Pandemic Has Proven Democracy is an Illusion, by Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted March 2nd, originally published on the Mercola site. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Listeners should know right off the bat that, for the record, neither this program nor Global Research supports the moves into Ukraine, which started on February 24th. Nevertheless, it is our impression that there are a lot of facts about the recent history of Ukraine and the problems faced by Russia that help us understand what is going on a little bit better. This cannot be summed up as simply a matter of Vladimir Putin wanting to rebuild the former Soviet Union at the expense of a perfectly peaceful people. Noting the stakes for Ukraine, we condemn the invasion of Ukraine and favor a bilateral peace agreement. Up first, we will venture down the road of providing a little context with my first guest, recorded March 2, 2022. The coverage of the Russian war on Ukraine is near constant these days, giving regular depictions of the violence and carnage the Russian military is regularly portrayed in the negative, the most negative possible sense, while the Ukrainians uh, either flee for their lives or arm up to fight back. But as it is always said, the first casualty of war is the truth, and one can sense some exaggerations, uh, perhaps on both the Russian and the Ukrainian side. Joining to familiar familiarize listeners with some of the context of the struggle, which has been missing in mainstream media coverage is Dr. Leon Tressel. Dr. Leon Tressel is a writer and analyst and a historian of geopolitics. He writes for southfront.org and is based in the United Kingdom. He's here with us now to see through a lot of the deception that dominates the airwaves in mainstream media in the West. Good afternoon, Dr. Tressel. It is a pleasure to finally have you on the show. Yeah, nice to meet you. Good afternoon. So uh, Vladimir Putin is uh, 
frequently portrayed as a villain on par with Adolf Hitler uh, for daring to invade without pretext. Are there some history or, or developments, well, in the country's recent past that could help us make sense of his actions as, as more than an arrogant push to rebuild the Soviet Union? The Western media obviously have totally mischaracterized what's going on and completely ignore the history of Ukrainian-Russian relations going back to 2014. So if you look at any of the mainstream media in the West, there is no context whatsoever to their coverage. It just appears to the casual reader of Western media that this evil man Putin has suddenly for no apparent reason, apart from his own evilness, in inverted commas, has decided to launch an unprovoked invasion upon Ukraine. Obviously, if we're to understand the context of the current conflict, then it's imperative that we look at events in Ukraine since February 2014, when the elected president, Yanukovych, was overthrown in the Maidan coup, which was an American-sponsored affair, and brought an ultranationalist regime to power in Ukraine, which then set off a chain reaction of events that led to Russian-speaking people in the Donbass region to break away out of fear of being a persecuted minority within Ukraine itself. So you've got to understand that historical context. And obviously, since 2014, the Ukrainian government in the summer of 2014 launched a so-called anti-terrorist operation against its own people in the Donbass. And obviously the Russian speakers in Donetsk and Lugansk formed ad hoc militias with which to resist the military invasion of the areas in which they lived. And obviously those militias have undoubtedly received weapons and assistance from Russia, I'm sure of that. Um, but obviously the resistance they put up was to prevent the killing, mass killings of Russian speakers, which would have undoubtedly happened, because as we know, within the Ukrainian army are openly neo-Nazi units, such as the Azov Battalion, which has been incorporated into the Ukrainian National Guard. You've got the Adar Battalion, another neo-Nazi formation that's also been incorporated into the Ukrainian army. And those formations have been sat on the so-called contact line since 2014, launching attacks against the Russian-speaking peoples of Donetsk and Lugansk, which is one aspect of the current conflict which the Western media refuse to actually talk about. It's just all about Russia mercilessly attacking Ukrainian civilians. And obviously, nobody countenances attacks upon civilians um, on any side. But it's so one-sided hysterical coverage in the Western media at the moment. Okay. Um, well, you said a couple of things there. First of all, the, uh, the, the, the coup that uh, removed uh, Yanukovych from power. Um, how do you say with such certainty that it was a US-sponsored affair? Well, at the time, um, in February 2014, Victoria Newland from the, United, from the United States State Department was over there in Ukraine. And there's the infamous phone call um, where she admits to basically the Americans picking the future members of the Ukrainian government 
where she makes the infamous statement about FDEU, which obviously at that time was trying to seek a peaceful solution to the crisis that was taking place in Ukraine at that time. I've also come across further evidence suggesting that um, mercenaries from Georgia um, were in Kiev at that time and they participated in the sniper shootings of both protesters and Ukrainian police, which obviously spiralled the conflict at that particular time. Mm. Okay, well, Putin says that he wants to demilitarize and denazify uh, Ukraine. Uh, Western critics have pretty well dismissed uh, well, well, as uh, among the fake news broadcast to the Russian people. I mean, I mean, surely that is a possibility. But could you name sources other than Russia or Russell, Russophilic Ukraine, say, that can verify the Nazi presence? Uh, you know, the, the Azov battalions, as you you call them, and, and others. Uh, that that uh, and the degree to which they are, in fact, directing affairs uh, in in the Donbass and, and in other areas. Well, personally, I like to look at primary sources and not rely upon second-hand accounts. And certainly, um, over the last period, I've been following quite closely an American journalist called Patrick Lancaster, who's been in the Donbass for several years now, and he produces daily broadcasts. Also, there's another American called Russell, Russell Texas Bentley, who also provides daily coverage of what's going on in the Donbass, and they provide first-hand video testimony um, to the events going on there. I've seen on um, Russell Bentley and on Patrick Lancaster's videos um, over the last period where they've shown footage from Donetsk, and you can see the Ukrainian military very close by, and you can see German Nazi flags flying quite openly over the positions of Ukrainian military units. And there's plenty of photographic evidence as well showing these neo-Nazi military formations with SS insignia um, on their uniforms. So for me, I look at evidence such as this, whereas obviously the Western media just dismisses any suggestion that there are neo-Nazi formations within the Ukraine. I mean, also you can look at Ukrainian society, which is there is a great deal of admiration, almost hero worship of Ukrainian Nazi collaborators, such as Stepan Bandera from the Second World War. Stepan Bandera um, participated with the SS and he led a military formation um, involving hundreds of Ukrainians who carried out numerous massacres during the Second World War. Yet in Ukraine, the government condones open processions of thousands of Ukrainian citizens commemorating and celebrating Stepan Bandera and his military formation who were regarded as great patriots because they fought against the Soviet Red Army in the Second World War and obviously aided the Nazis in their extermination campaigns on the territory of the Soviet Union. So that kind of evidence for me, I find quite compelling. Okay. Uh, in terms of Donbass, uh, you know, Donetsk and, and Lugansk, uh, the degree to which it, it is covered in Western media, uh, they, they put the, the battle, you know, the blame on the battle on, on both sides. In fact, I mean, the Russians, they say, are directing the operation 
uh, from the Donbass side. I mean, rather, I, I guess like the way the, the Syrian defense forces in Syria are not really Syrian, they're backed by the US. So to what degree can you say this is not the case that the Ukrainian people are being attacked by the Ukraine government? I mean, since 2015, I've closely followed the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It's got a military mission in Ukraine. It's got hundreds of observers in the Donbass region. So I've closely followed their reports over the last few years where you've seen the ebbs and flows in the fighting that's taken place in the Donbass. And certainly in recent months, it's quite clear from looking at those reports, those daily reports which are produced, that the infringements of the ceasefire have mainly been coming from the Ukrainian side. I mean, I wrote an article recently before the current um, conflict arose and I just quoted, I just randomly picked some dates out. So, for example, on the 17th of February, there were 222 ceasefire violations in the Donetsk region. Um, and the day before that, there were 189 ceasefire violations. Meanwhile, on the 17th of February, there were 648 ceasefire violations in the Lugansk region, whereas the day before, there were 402 ceasefire violations. And the clear majority of those ceasefire violations, at least two-thirds, were coming from the Ukrainian army, which obviously has consistently uh, refused to stop shelling predominantly civilian targets um, within Donetsk and Lugansk. And again, I would refer any listeners to the reports of journalists such as Patrick Lancaster in particular and uh, Russell Bentley, who show you quite clearly the damage that has been done to civilian settlements in Donetsk and Lugansk by Ukrainian artillery. If the Ukrainian government was uh, genuinely interested in peace, why is it consistently for the last seven years continue to fire artillery shells into Donetsk and Lugansk, predominantly against civilian targets? Yet you won't hear a peep of that in the Western media. They don't talk about the thousands of people who've been killed, civilians, in the Donetsk and Lugansk regions by the Ukrainian armed forces. So uh, the, the Russian response is to invade the entire country. <clears throat> uh, why, why wouldn't they just uh, restrict their activities to just the Donbass? Well, personally, um, I would suggest that Putin has made a mistake in invading Ukraine. I do honestly believe that he did have other actions, although I can understand why he has launched um, an invasion of Ukraine, because obviously the Ukrainian government has steadfastly refused to implement the Minsk peace accords of 2014 and 2015. And contrary to how the Western media portrayed it, the Minsk peace accords put the onus quite clearly upon the Ukrainian government to implement a series of political and military measures. I mean, for take one example, in the Minsk Peace Accords, it calls for heavy artillery to be withdrawn to military bases. And the Ukrainian army steadfastly refused to withdraw its heavy artillery to military bases. You can see that in the OSCE um, reports. 
never mind its complete refusal to engage in any kind of political negotiations with the authorities in the People's Republic of Donetsk and the People's Republic um, of Lugansk. So it's quite clear that obviously the Ukrainian government has refused to compromise and has been screaming for the last seven years for the United States and NATO to come to its rescue. Again, to give listeners some context, in early 2015, the Ukrainian armed forces suffered a series of major defeats in the Donbass, the culmination of which was the Battle of Dalbelsevo, which I believe was, I can't remember if it was February, March 2015, and the Ukrainian army suffered a major defeat and retreated. And then things went quiet for a period. And it's at that time that Western nations like Germany and France were screaming for negotiations. And we had the Minsk II um, peace accords that were instituted as a result of the defeat of the Ukrainian army. And that's continued right up until the present day. And unfortunately, in my opinion, I think Russia has fallen into the American trap to some degree by rising to these constant provocations and the intensification of the shelling of civilians in Donetsk and Lugansk. In my own personal opinion, I think Russia should have directed more military aid to the People's Republics of Donetsk and Lugansk with which to defend themselves from the aggression from the Ukrainian armed forces. But it's quite clear that the Americans have been directing this. They've consistently sabotaged any attempts at implementing the, the Minsk Peace Accords and have encouraged, poured billions of dollars of economic aid and military aid into the Ukrainian military and giving the Ukrainian uh, regime in Kiev a quite clear signal that the United States is very happy for Ukraine to continue attacking um, Lugansk and Donetsk. And obviously, I suppose, Putin did give the Ukrainian government ultimatum before the invasion, saying, look, you have got to stop your military attacks upon um, the peoples of Donetsk and Lugansk. And instead of uh, heeding to that warning, the Ukrainian government actually intensified its military assault, its artillery uh, shelling of Donetsk and Lugansk. And I suppose um, Putin thought, right, OK, I've given you plenty of warnings and now I'm going to take matters into my own hand and I'm going to bring about a military situation whereby the Ukrainian military is destroyed and disarmed and therefore it cannot continue attacking the people of Donetsk and Lugansk. Um, so personally, I, th I think that, you know, those are some of the factors that we need to bear in mind when we're looking at the situation and trying to see through all the fog of misinformation, disinf disinformation and propaganda coming from Western media outlets. Mm. Yeah, and, and just quickly, I mean, there are also a lot of Russians, people in Russia who are protesting against the war. Um, I mean, is it, uh, and, and especially the fact that the war is in fact illegal, or it seems to be. Um, so, so, I mean, what, what options does Russia have now? I mean, do, do they have to reverse or, or, or do they just have to complete this business and including the, the arrests of all these uh, activists? So what do you think? I think that the Russian government is not going to withdraw its forces regardless of the severity of the economic sanctions instituted by the West. I think if the Russian government withdrew its forces with nothing to show for hundreds of soldiers dead, 
then he would face a huge wave of criticism and opposition from the Russian people. Um, so I believe that the Russian government is definitely committed to see this through, to destroy the military infrastructure, to destroy the armed forces of Ukraine, and by force of arms bring about a settlement um, on the ground, so to speak. Personally, um, I've always been an anti-war activist, and I don't believe that military conflict is the way for any country to resolve its military, political and socio-economic problems. But this, this is a situation we're confronted with, and I just think that Putin is going to see this through until he achieves some kind of decisive military victory. doesn't matter what I say or anybody else. That's, you know, he's going to look for facts on the ground. And in terms of negotiations with Ukraine, the history of warfare shows that it's much better to be bargaining with your adversary from a position of strength. So the negotiations that started, I don't believe they're going to get anywhere in the next period until Putin feels that he's achieved a sufficient military defeat of the Ukrainian armed forces. And then obviously, in that situation, the Ukrainian government would have no, no option but to enter into um, negotiations with Russia as to the future direction of Ukraine as a country. Dr. Tressel, thanks so much for sharing this analysis with our listeners. Yes, thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Dr. Leon Tressel. Uh, he's a writer, an analyst, and a historian of geopolitics based in the United Kingdom and a writer for southfront.org. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Joining me now is Bruce Gagnon. He is a longtime peace activist based in Maine and coordinator of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. Great to have you back on, Bruce. Thank you very much. Looking back over five decades of activism and multiple wars that have been fought, how does the current circumstance with Russia invading Ukraine stand out? Well, in many uh, ways, very similar. You know, when we look at uh, U.S. shock and awe attack on Iraq in 2003, or whether when we look at the U.S. NATO uh, destruction of Libya, and even before that, back during the Bill Clinton era, the U.S. Uh, NATO uh, Germany was heavily involved in the breakup of Yugoslavia. Uh, I think what uh, connects all of those events to this current situation is the massive lies that we hear coming out of uh, the uh, Western corporate dominated media. Uh, They have uh, developed a very effective uh, saturation process really where they just confuse the public to the point that today, I think more than I've ever seen before, we have people on the so-called left that are uh, just taking the U.S. NATO side in this whole thing, despite all of the empirical evidence that exists over what has happened really since 2007, when Vladimir Putin uh, went to Munich and made a speech where he at that time laid out these uh, requests 
to the Western powers for uh, Russian security and said that, you know, uh, NATO expansion violating a promise that was made to us at the, at the time of the collapse of the former Soviet Union, where Russia, uh, then Mikhail Gorbachev agreed to the reunification of Germany uh, under the understanding that there would be no expansion of NATO. So that promise has been violated during the Clinton administration, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, began this NATO expansion in a very aggressive way. In addition, war games all the time up in the Nordic region. In fact, in March and April of this year, uh, Cold Response 2, it's called, uh, will be going on. Uh, and uh, the US NATO will be having war games up in the Arctic region. And they're always held uh, routinely in Eastern Europe, uh, right into Poland, into Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Uh, and so all of that together has created this situation uh, where uh, Russia feels extremely destabilized. I, I call it a Cuban Missile Crisis in reverse. Uh, we have to remember that the United States has built missile launch facilities in Romania and Poland that can fire Tomahawk cruise missiles, nuclear capable weapons that can reach uh, Moscow and other targets around Russia in a very short period of time. Just, just in the last two weeks, the United States forced a military base into Slovakia, despite uh, large protests in Slovakia against it, saying we don't want our country to be used as a base by the United States. So these kind of <clears throat> things have been going on. And ultimately, the cherry on top of the cake is the 2014 US orchestrated coup d'etat in Ukraine that overthrew an elective, <clears throat> excuse me, an elected president and then ushered in this, uh, this civil war really that we see today in Ukraine. I, I noticed on your blog, an article uh, put forward by Rand Corporation, an American nonprofit a uh, global policy think tank offering research and uh, analysis to the armed, US armed forces. Uh, the study is called Overextending and Unbalancing Russia, Assessing the Impact of Cost-Imposing Options. Can you give us a, a brief summary of, of what was in that report, what it's all about, and, and whether there's uh, evidence that uh, it was actually in the works prior to the invasion by Russia last week? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, first of all, the funding for the RAND Corporation predominantly comes from uh, the U.S. military industrial complex. And so basically, as far as I'm concerned, this was a, pl a plan, a study done to lay out how uh, the U.S. and its allies could force regime change inside of Russia. And one of the key elements in that study is uh, creating a chaotic situation inside of Ukraine that would essentially uh, uh, turn Ukraine into a festering sore on Russia's border, forcing them ultimately to have to react. And that's what we now see, they've reacted. And when they do react, they're then demonized and uh, sanctions you know, and everything else are being imposed on them. So this is all part of a larger US effort, similar to what was done to Yugoslavia in the, in the, uh, uh, in the 90s, uh, where uh, the attempt is to break Russia into pieces. 
into smaller countries. And I think much of it has to do with climate change, with the melting of the Arctic ice. And Russia has the largest land border with the Arctic and the resource extraction corporations in the West want to drill baby drill up in that area. And so uh, if they can break Russia up into smaller countries, then they believe they'll have a greater access uh, to that region. So this is, I think, as always, uh, it's resources. It's driving this whole thing. And Russia is a resource rich uh, country, but they can't come to the American people the military industrial complex, the Wall Street, et cetera. They can't come to the American people, the people of Canada, the people of Europe and say, help us militarily encircle Russia because we wanna destroy them, do regime change. We wanna access to their resources. So they have to create a fabrication, another story that is used to demonize Russia. And so this uh, Ukraine situation is their, uh, uh, their uh, choice as, as a way to do it. Uh, Ukraine is basically being used as a tool to put in motion this process. They don't give a damn about the Ukrainian people. All the stories about all the poor suffering Ukrainian people, look how, you know, this and that and everything else. They don't care about them any more than they cared about the people of Iraq, where the U.S. and its allies killed 1.5 million people during its shock and awe. Where was the outcry around the world at that time? Where were the uh, steps to put sanctions on Washington when they did that? Where were the steps to remove the United States from the United Nations? Uh, where were the steps to uh, remove the United States from World Cup and, uh, and Olympics and all these things that they're now trying to do to Russia? Uh, so, you know, it's hypocrisy at its highest level but what makes me most sad as being a peace activist for all these years is it how so many people are falling for this corporate line, this corporate public relations campaign. Um, your organization specializes in the use of nuclear weapons and, and weapons in space. Uh, Russia has now put its nuclear weapons on alert. Uh, do you have any concerns that a nuclear war and, and, and space weapons could be a factor in this so far territorial campaign? I think it's probably a small possibility. I don't think anybody wants nuclear war. I think the United States and NATO believe they can accomplish their goal without nuclear war. Although we must remember that the United States does have nuclear weapons in Europe. Uh, they're stationed in Belgium and Germany and Italy and maybe one or two other countries uh, that I can't recall at this moment, but, and they're introducing new uh, upgraded versions of those nuclear weapons the United States is. So uh, I think Russia has reacted, uh, putting their nuclear forces on alert because they're trying to get the world's attention more than anything else. They're trying to get people to stop and think that uh, this, military encirclement of Russia, this ongoing expansion of NATO and everything that comes with it is destabilizing for them. Again, it's a Cuban missile crisis in reverse. And uh, they've been begging, they've been begging uh, for uh, some relief. Uh, you know, these demands that they made, I think are very fair and very rational. Pull back NATO, stop your war games on our border. I mean, my God, if the United States uh, uh, saw today that China or Russia was 
uh, putting uh, military bases in Canada or in Mexico, U.S. would go ballistic over that. You know, Washington would never stand for that. But when Washington does it and Brussels to Russia, then it's, hey, nothing wrong with that. You know, uh, it's, it's again, it's hypocrisy. Uh, I'm wondering now, uh, are, are there any upcoming actions that uh, your, your group is, uh, you wish to, to share with our audience? Well, on March 6th, it's been declared an international day of protest against war uh, and, and calling for uh, NATO to be uh, at the very least pulled back, if not disbanded. It's important to know that NATO envisions itself as a global alliance. They've now created partnerships in Latin America, like with Colombia, in the Asia Pacific, with Japan and Singapore and Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Korea. So what's happening is that the US doesn't like having to go to the United Nations and say, we want permission to invade another country, to topple another uh, country's government, uh, because it's vetoed by China and Russia. And so they, their vision is to create this international NATO that then has this power to say, look, we represent the world. We stand you know, as a democratic uh, alliance of powers around the world. And so we can do whatever the hell we want. That's what's happening today. And so I think we do have to start talking about uh, getting rid of NATO. You know, Warsaw Pact, the Soviet Union's military alliance in Eastern Europe, was dissolved at the time that the Soviet Union collapsed. But NATO never did. And in fact, you know, it's been on steroids ever since. So uh, this call by many different groups around the world for a protest on March 6th, I think, is very important. Bruce, it's great to have you on again at Fun Going Activism. Thank you, Michael. Take care. Okay, uh, we've been speaking with Bruce Gagnon. He's coordinator of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. For more of a Canadian perspective on the Russian war on Ukraine, we're joined by Tamara Lawrence. Uh, she is a member of the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace, a PhD candidate at the Balsillie School of International Affairs at Wilfrid Laurier University and a fellow with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. And she's mentioned that Canada as an active supporter of NATO is a part of the problem and not a part of the solution of the conflict affecting Ukraine. And she will outline some of the moves the nation can yet take to de-escalate affairs. Thank you so much for joining us, Tamara. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Now, you were active for weeks prior to the invasion uh, by Russia. Uh, on January 18th, you released a statement in collaboration with other peace groups in Canada to stop a war in Ukraine. Uh, your position at that time was to stop arming Ukraine, end Operation Unifier, and to demilitarize the Ukraine crisis. And you want Canada out of NATO. And I don't think your policies have altered. How do these positions realistically benefit the people of Ukraine now that the war has started? Well, let me begin by saying, you know, we could hear the 
drums of war beating very early on. I mean, last fall, we mobilized as a peace community in Canada in December. We had a number of meetings and we invited uh, peace activists in Ukraine to participate. And, and it was those meetings where we shared our concern. We knew we needed to do something. We wanted to be uh, we wanted to be proactive in our approach. This is why we released that statement. You know, we were very worried that that it was going to escalate into uh, this armed conflict that we're seeing now, and it was something that we wanted to prevent. Uh, we were also very concerned about how the Canadian government was approaching this. So, for instance, our foreign affairs minister, Melanie Jolie, refused to meet with Russian officials to discuss uh, the problem last fall and then at the beginning of this year. So the, 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 the lack of diplomacy on the part of Canada was very troubling to us. And it was also extremely disconcerting to us that Canada was starting to uh, increase uh, non-lethal and lethal aid to Ukraine, uh, making loans to facilitate the buying of more weapons, and then also having a very aggressive rhetoric against, against Russia. And so that's why we had that statement. We also released a petition. We had a number of days of actions calling for peace and no war with Russia, because it was something that we were very, very concerned about. And we believe that our positions uh, then are just as consistent and needed now. So we do not think that more weapons into Ukraine is the answer. It's just going to lead to more chaos and violence and injury and death. And so we are uh, very much opposed to the announcements that Canada has made over the past uh, week saying that they are going to be uh, sending uh, more uh, weapons to the country. And this is what we want to stop. Mm -hmm. We want to stop Canada from selling weapons and we want the, the armed conflict. We want Russia and NATO to stop fighting with each other. Well, just if you don't arm the, if the Ukrainians are unarmed, I mean, I know there are other uh, countries contributing, but if the, the, the less armed they are, the, the best, the less of a chance they have of, of, of standing up to the Russians. So, I mean, what does that not mean that you're going to quicken the, the, uh, the success of the Russians in this regard? Well, so if you look at uh, the statistics from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe over the past eight years, since really this crisis came to a head in 2014, when the Yanukovych uh, uh, government was, was ousted and uh, the uh, Poroshenko government was, was backed and installed by, uh, by the United States, effectively, um, over the past eight years, there has been a tremendous amount of violence uh, in the eastern part of the country, in the uh, ethnic Russian communities of the Donbass, and so there has been there has been a lot of violence uh, there. There's shooting and shelling on both sides of the demarcation line, and uh, uh, at that time last fall, uh, when the you know over the past eight years, as this uh, situation has got has got much worse. Um, there have been appeals by the Russians to say, uh, you know, we want a political solution. We we don't. We we are very concerned about the 
about uh, NATO in in the country. We are very concerned. Russia expressed, you know, deep concern about a greater presence of NATO in in Ukraine. Uh, so, for instance. Uh, Canada, as part of a NATO operation in Ukraine, has had Operation Unifier. We've trained 30,000 uh, Ukrainian security forces over the past eight years, you know, trained them, helped arm them. And we know from the media that uh, some of these forces are extreme right-wing forces. So Centuria, the Azov Battalion, and, um, and you know, are arming these extreme uh, nationalist forces in Ukraine has has escalated has escalated the violence on the Ukrainian side, and it's also escalated vi violence on the ethnic Russian side in in the Donbass. More arms on either side is not the answer. So we want uh, uh, Russia to stop uh, shelling and shooting, and we want Ukraine to stop sh sh uh, shooting and shelling, and we want NATO to. Uh, to stop provoking this because it really is about uh, NATO membership in Ukraine. And so, you know, we need to have a serious conversation about NATO's role in this. Well, the, the largest Ukrainian diaspora outside Ukraine itself is within Canada. And given the strength of the Ukrainian community in, in Canada seems to be uh, overwhelmingly opposed to, to the positions that you articulate, how can you get Trudeau, the Liberals, or in fact, any of the politicians in the House of Commons to see things your way? The uh, Ukrainian diaspora in Canada is uh, very large and it's very strong and they've actually received funding from the federal government and they have very close ties to the federal government. Of course, our Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, is an active member in the U the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, the UCC has been um, has had very aggressive rhetoric against Russia. They have been calling for Canada and uh, other NATO forces to to, uh, to to arm Ukraine. They have pushed for Ukraine to become a member of NATO, which you know antagonizes Russia, and they've they've called for. Ukraine to be part of the European Union, and they have tried to to draw Ukraine away from uh, Russia, even though about 25% of the population in, in Ukraine currently uh, are Russians, are ethnic Russian uh, citizens. And, uh, and, and if you follow the statements that the Ukrainian Canadian Congress has made over the past few weeks, it's been increasingly, um, it, it is, it is, you know, escalated this uh, conflict. You know, they've asked for uh, lethal aid. Now they're calling for a no-fly zone and more sanctions. Um, really, what the Ukrainian Canadian Congress uh, should be calling for is for. Uh, you know what we what we were calling for months ago, and that was uh, for there to be a, a negotiated political solution because um, the the a mili the military option is what is playing out right now, and it's very violent and it's causing you know injury and death of Ukrainians and. And, and, and this isn't good in the best interests of Ukraine. And the best interests of Ukraine is a political solution that includes um, that includes uh, the consideration for the ethnic 
uh, Russians in the east and a, 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 you know, a political negotiated solution around economic interests as well. So that's what they should have been calling for. And actually, there is some divisions in the Ukrainian community in Canada. There is uh, another Ukrainian association called the Association of United Ukrainians. And they are have a more anti-war position. They've been calling for peace. They have uh, opposed what NATO is doing in Ukraine. They have had rallies as well in Manitoba, and they have issued some statements that counter what the, the Ukrainian Canadian Congress has put out. So um, it's not a unified voice for the Ukrainian Canadian community in this country. It, it, it is divided. Now, I, I also noticed that you studied CBC's coverage of the Ukraine issue before and after the war started. How fair and balanced would you say that coverage was? Yes, I have followed uh, the CBC reporting uh, over the past uh, three months are on the issue of Ukraine. Of course, I've been following uh, CBC's reporting on uh, uh, foreign policy for you know for many years and have paid attention to how CBC reported on uh, the crisis in 2014 and then also very carefully especially carefully over the past few months as I started to hear from the CBC uh, the very uh, a negative portrayal of uh, Russia um, this very aggressive language and rhetoric and uh, very similar uh, similar messaging to what we're hearing from the United States and from the United Kingdom. And it really caused me to be uh, very concerned and pay even greater attention. So I started uh, listening to various CBC shows and, and counting how many critical voices that they had on a program. So for instance, if I was listening to the House or Power in Politics or The Current, I uh, counted, you know, did they have somebody who was giving the Russian perspective? Did they have anybody who was giving a more critical, uh, you know, peace perspective? And they've had very, very, very few voices. I mean, most of the shows are dominated by pro-military, pro-NATO, anti-Russia of uh, uh, voices. And so this caused me great concern, and it led me to uh, complain to the CBC, and I have filed. Uh, formal complaints asking, you know, why is this happening and and sharing with them my statistics uh, um, uh, about uh, the how unbalanced and biased their reporting has been. Uh, so I filed these complaints to the CBC ombudsperson, uh, James uh, Nagler, and uh, any Canadian can do this. The CBC has a a public complaints service through the ombudsperson and you can uh, file these complaints. And I would uh, eventually like to uh, make a, a complaint as well to, um, to uh, you know, um, maybe uh, the, uh, the bigger national body, um, that oversees the journalistic standards in this country because there really is a failure on the part of the CBC to, to, to fairly report on the situation. And the, 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 
uh, just to give you a couple of examples, I mean, for instance, uh, I, I have not heard at all on CBC the fact that it's it's NATO expansion to Russia's borders that 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 is is part of the problem. So they continue to, to ignore this issue, and Russia has repeatedly said that NATO expansion, NATO NATO's presence in Ukraine, um, is a red line and it's causing problems, and the CBC uh, you know refuses to uh, to you know to discuss this, to elaborate on this, to investigate this. The CBC has also done a terrible job uh, investigating the, the fact that Canada is arming and training a right-wing uh, security forces in Ukraine, something that's not allowed to happen in this country. The other thing is the United, uh, the, the CBC is parroting uh, the, the, the same you know, language uh, that we hear in the United States and the United Kingdom. So for instance, using, uh, saying that this Ukraine crisis and the Russian invasion is unprovoked. Well, that's just not accurate. That is just not a fact. I mean, you just need to look at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe to see that, 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 it, that this was provoked, that this, there, there was provocation. And, um, and we need to, to, be, to be honest about that because if we're honest about, um, the source of the problem, then we can, um, then we can find a more durable uh, resolution. So Canada really needs to hold itself accountable for uh, escalating this crisis and for um, uh, pushing uh, Russia into the situation uh, that that it's in right now. I mean, it, it, it pushed Russia into a corner. Okay, I just got about 30 seconds left. Can you talk in it about the, the events coming up this in Canada this weekend to which the public's invited you know, to participate? I mean, where, where are they and where can listeners get more information? Yes, so on Friday, the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute and World Beyond War, and the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace is having a webinar called uh, Cutting Through the Spin. And uh, you can find information about that at foreignpolicy.ca. There's going to be a great panel of speakers, and it'll be an excellent opportunity to find out more. Uh, and, and then this Sunday, March 6th, is the Global Day of Action for Peace. And peace groups in Canada are going to be partnering with groups around the world, calling for an immediate ceasefire and for a no more war. And you can find more information about that on worldbeyondwar.org. Tamara Lawrence, uh, thank you for your time. I appreciate hearing from you. Thanks very much, Michael. Have a good rest of your day. Okay, okay thanks. That was Tamara Lawrence. Uh, she's a member of Canadian Voice of Women for Peace and a fellow with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. As we conclude this show, a look into next week's broadcast, we will further explore the increasing threat of this conflict over Ukraine escalating into a full-blown nuclear war between nuclear power, the United States, and Russia. Listen here in seven days' time. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. 
I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.